Welcome to Clockwork, a Legion podcast. I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And this week we're talking our fourth bonus episode about Fargo. We cannot get enough of Fargo. Did you hear that they're making a fourth season of Fargo that's set in the 16th century and is about pirates? They're calling it Fargo. No. (laughs) Bad. (laughs) Bad. Also, Black Sails is bad. (laughs) Black Sails is canonically the fourth season of Fargo. Sure. Fargo. No. Also, speaking of the fourth season of Fargo, it is pretty unconfirmed that there's ever going to be a fourth season. Yeah, and that's why I had to say that joke really quickly so no one got excited. There is not confirmed fourth season of Fargo, and officially, the official word is... There will be a fourth series of Fargo if Noah Hawley gets a good idea for a fourth season of Fargo, which he currently does not have. And frankly, when we're looking at them as a three-part series, we kind of think, it's done. Let's get into that Let's get a into little, that bit. little bit. So we've got lots of things to talk about today. We do. We have some things that we forgot to mention in our first recording. Forgot or didn't have time to. Didn't have to. time to, mostly, because like, it wasn't long enough. Some, some motifs and some themes that are recurring that, are as a, that are gather the seasons as a whole together. And we're going to talk about some listener feedback that we've gotten. And uh, if you've talked to us, you're going to hear your name called out. So stay so tuned to the around. very end and we'll read some things that people have said to us. So do you want to start with things that... Uh, we meant to talk, say in episodes and didn't get yeah. to. There are things that actually, there are two things that I meant to say. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so I came, so I was listening, I listened back to our episodes and the season two arc with the Gerhardt family, I realized we talked a lot about war, but they mentioned that uh, Otto Gerhardt's father is like, it's like World War One, which is great because that's over, but look out, here comes Hitler, and Otto Gerhardt is kind of the Hitler in that situation. And so when he dies, you get Bear, Dodd, and Floyd taking over, and that's kind of, if we go with the wars that are represented, those three are the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And the arc of the Gerhardt family is the arc of wars that have touched America, and the Vietnam War ended poorly, and the Gerhardt family ends poorly. The Vietnam War, I think we touched tangentially in our episode, but we didn't really say it as explicitly as you just did, that the Vietnam War is a major theme for season two, and the Mm -hmm. Gerhardt family, like, it's a war that they kind of don't want to be in, Mm -hmm. don't really belong in, they disagree with each other about whether it's a good idea, and they lose. Yep, exactly. And so that's is, yeah, I think yeah. That's you're a major. Right. It's a major thing, and it's uh, it, it kind of occurred to me later, and I was like, "Why didn't I say that? It was so smart." <laughs> 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 so the other thing that we just have to have a conversation about is in season three, we just didn't have time to talk about it. But this other henchman show Varga's other henchman shows up. He's the one who tries to poison Nikki in jail, and then they later he gets beheaded. His name doesn't really get mentioned, but in the script, his name is Gollum. G-O-L-E-M. So. So that's not Gollum from Lord of the Rings. That's the Jewish mythology Gollum. Can you speak to like what exactly that is? Yeah, so in Jewish mythology, in the ghetto of Warsaw, a rabbi created a creature out of clay and inscribed a a Kabbalah letter on his head Mm -hmm. that brought him to life. And he was uh, tasked with protecting the Jews of the ghetto in Warsaw, but uh, his creator lost control of him, and he ended up terrorizing them and being unreasonably violent. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they destroyed the word. on. They couldn't kill him until they destroyed the word in his forehead, and that killed him. Mm-hmm. Generally, the idea of a golem has picked up throughout pop culture. Yeah. It's a creature. It's, you know, Frankenstein is a golem. Yeah. It's a creature Frank- that creates... Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein is a doctor. No, he's not. He's an undergrad who never completed his degree. <laughs> anyway. Um... <laughs> 
A golem is a magic creature created to protect a community and always the community loses control of him. Mm -hmm. In Jewish mythology especially is where it comes from. Yeah. So there's a lot. Why? Like, oh, what's about him? Yeah, (laughs) I know, right? So Judaism is important in season three of Fargo. In all of Fargo. Yeah. Frankly. It's this this golem character has Helga written on his arm. Yeah. Helga being the person that Yuri has killed and he sees this on his arm. And the way that you control a golem is you write the you write the word on his forehead and you write the creator or the person who's supposed to control its name on the skin. Hmm. Why would Varga have a henchman who is a golem? Yes. When Varga is anti-Semitic and Varga's whole team are really oriented against the Jews. Yeah, they are. Very explicitly. Yeah. And why does he, if he has Helga's name inscribed on his skin... If we're following the mythology of the golem, that would mean that Helga is the one who is controlling him. Yes. If Helga has died, Helga no longer can control him. That would be why he's out of control and he's become a threat to the Jews instead of a protector to them. Yes. And they destroy, they decapitate him because they're destroying the mark on his head. Mm -hmm. That's the only way to kill him, to destroy him. Because and that's bef- just before they all go to the bowling alley. Mm-hmm. So they destroy this golem and then meet Ray Wise, who is this kind of Jewish god. What is the um the three henchmen wear animal heads? What's the animal that Gollum wears? Oh, he wears a pig. He wears a pig. He wears a pig. That's significant because Jews aren't allowed to eat pork. He either wears a pig or a goat. I would need to no, go back Mimo and wears the Mimo goat. Mimo wears the goat. Mimo wears the goat. Yuri wears a wolf. And Gollum, Gollum wears, wears a pig. pig. I'm so excited <laughs> about the, like, because why symbolism it, suddenly just, like, blew my brain out. Why would it, why would a Jewish mythological character be associated with pigs? Because uh, pork is forbidden in Judaism because it's unclean. He's a creature that is unclean, symbolically unclean and symbolically profane. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And he, so he's profane magic mm-hmm. who is a threat to Judaism, who was, because Helga's name is on his skin, was his creator and controller no longer has control over him. My brain just totally exploded. (laughs) I mean, what this says to me is that Fargo is a show you could watch over and over and get more things every time. Yeah. The symbolism is rich and deep and like, wow, you need to know things. And Noah Hawley is incredibly smart. I think we kind of need to move on from I think we do. But like, just touching on that a tiny bit shows how much depth there is to... To Fargo. And I very much suspect that we could pick a detail in season one that we never talked about and pick it apart in the same way. Yeah, exactly. So this is one that you happen to notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure. There are more. Guaranteed, a thousand percent guaranteed, which is ten times more than completely. Um, <laughs> n- 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 any number of other details yep. you could start picking at. Let's move on. Yep. Are there, um, so let's talk about some of the motifs that carry on between all three seasons. So that means, you know, characters, but also specific images, things that happen in every season. One that I really want to draw attention to is predators and prey and wolves, wolves, wolves. (laughs) (laughs) How many wolves? <laughs> wolves. There's lots of wolves. Um, wolves in particular. So, obviously, season one begins with a deer 
that's a prey animal and ends with a wolf that's a predator animal. And Varga, I mean, Varga, and Malvo throughout season one is associated with predators and explicitly, like, labeled as a predator. Yeah. In season two, we have Hansi's introduction, Killing a Rabbit. Mm-hmm. So he's, again, there's a prey animal, and there's, by implication, we're making Hansi a predator. He's never explicitly labeled a predator in the same way, but he's his first, with words, I mean. Yeah. But his first appearance is very much like he's hunting because he's a predator and there's a prey. And then, and season two is also when Ben Schmidt uh, talks about, the wolves were at the doors. What was I supposed to do near the, at the end of the season? Mm-hmm. So again, wolves showing up. Yeah. And then season three, the strongest wolf connection is in season three, particularly in the Peter and the Wolf. Yeah. In the, whichever episode that is, episode three, I think. You have Varga explicitly being the wolf, and but then also Yuri explicitly being like wearing a wolf's head. Just right. for fun, I guess. So what is the deal with all the wolves, with all the predators and prey? You forgot to mention, too, the story Lorne Melvo tells to the supermarket king. Right. about wolves in the dark, wolves coming for you. And, uh, no, I, th- I thought Varga's story to Emmett mentions wolves, but it doesn't. It mentions villagers with pitchforks and mm. torches. Yeah. But yeah, so there's... A lot of wolves, this whole series, all three seasons, are all about predators and prey, and who's the prey and who's the predators, mm-hmm. and the, Noah Hawley's favorite predator is a wolf. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the interesting thing about a wolf, specifically, is that wolves, uh, you have the idea of a lone wolf, mm-hmm. and that in this in these three seasons, you have Malvo, you have Hansi, you have Varga. Now, Malvo and Varga are much more explicitly lone wolf. Hansi is, but is in the... He is... There's so many more characters in season two. Yeah. But um, there's this whole lone wolf idea. But wolves in real life, you generally don't get lone wolves. You act, Wolves hunt in packs. So these three characters actually do as the se- as the seasons progress have more packs around them like Malvo is really a lone wolf mm-hmm. he's like actually alone whereas Hansi is the agent of a pack and Varga has all of his henchmen he's alone in the pack but he has a whole network of henchmen and maybe, that's, and maybe that's why it makes sense that Varga is the wolf, but so is Yuri, because yeah. there he's the wolf who has other wolves he's around the beta, him. He's the beta wolf or whatever Yuri, Yuri is. Yuri's the beta wolf. Um, we talked in our other podcast when we were talking about the Lion King, we talked about taking uh, a philosophical or political worldview, ascribing it to animals, and then using the animals to justify your worldview. Yeah. Lone Wolves is a great example of that because, and Alpha, we just talked about Alpha and Betel. Alpha male wolves are not a thing. (laughs) Uh, That Alpha-Beta relationship is based on wolves in captivity where their social connections have been destroyed and they're traumatized. Um, But I, I think I'm bringing this up because Malvo really explicitly looks to violent nature as his model of how one should behave. And he's the alpha, he's the lone wolf, mm-hmm. but you just said really correctly, wolves aren't, lone wolves aren't natural. Yeah. And so the kind of predator that Malvo is, is not a natural predator. And that's important when you remember how much Malvo looks to nature to defend his own behavior. Yeah. He's doing exactly what we talked about, what I talked about in The Lion King. He's taking a philosophy that he wants to have ascribing it incorrectly to nature and then using nature to justify his behavior. Yeah. And we see that throughout the the connection of the them to predators and wolves specifically really emphasize that throughout. And maybe that is even stronger because in the end of season one, when Gus meets an actual wolf, mm-hmm. the actual wolf is not a threat to him. Yeah. Because 
Malvo is incorrect when he thinks of himself as a predator because mm. predators kill to eat. Yeah. They're part of an ecosystem. So all of these... Uh, but Malvo thinks of himself as part of the ecosystem. He thinks he's necessary in society, that someone like him is, exists. Yeah. But, but we see not. that he's incorrect, yeah. right? right. And the connection of an actual wolf that leads Gus to destroying Malvo mm-hmm. symbolically is connecting us to the idea that he is outside the circle of what is meant to, what is natural and good and right to be. Mm-hmm. And maybe, uh, now how do we apply that to the other seasons? Like Varga is also a predator and he, I want to connect that kind of to Varga and his bulimia because predators again kill to eat, but Varga doesn't eat to consume calories. So there's something about if we think of him as a predator, uh, he's completely unnatural as a predator because a natural, like he, he talks about Emmett as like food knows it's food, but Varga doesn't eat food for the reason that net, Natural predators, natural predators do. Would, yeah. Even literal food, he doesn't consume it the way that natural predators do and should. Hmm. So he's an unnatural predator. So then, who are all the deer? <laughs> we have... If we have all these predators, do we actually have prey? Are all the people who die the prey in the end? Or are the good people to pray. I kind of think that the prey in Fargo are the people like Lester hmm. and uh, Peggy, uh, the people who kind of try to be predators but aren't. Emmett. Emmett. Even Cy, yeah. The people who are in the not in le- the same league as the unnatural predators. And so they're try they think of themselves or the show is temp- the show tempts us to sometimes to think of them as if they're predators but in fact they are the ones who are the well, deer yeah um any other things that you notice throughout the seasons you want to talk about there's this um organized crime hmm. keeps being taken down so in the first season you have the Fargo First, you have Sam Hess being killed, but then, like, the Fargo syndicate gets shot up by Malvo. Then you have the Gerhardt family is completely taken out. Then you have uh, Varga is organized crime as well, and he is taken down by the IRS. And even if, even though the ending of season three is ambiguous whether Varga personally gets taken down, his organized crime yeah. uh, project in yeah, Fargo... Exactly. It definitely is taken down. That's not ambiguous at all. So no one gets away with being evil, I think. Hmm. They do in a way, but like these big organizations of evil are ended in every season. season. Interesting. And there's also uh, this pining for a better world. Hmm. This every single season has... The world isn't what it seems to be. They're pining for a time when you could leave your doors unlocked. This and mythical that's specifically time, that phrase is yep. a motif for sure. This mythical time when you can leave your doors unlocked. No matter how far we go back in the past, that's still like that happened before. Or that happens now. People do that. And it's kind of a, it's a false security thing where you feel like, uh, in every age, there's people who don't trust anyone and want to lock their doors. And in every age, there's people who do trust, who do think that there's the basic good in people and leave their doors unlocked. And that's kind of the, a person like uh, Molly Fulverson will, or no, really, a person like Gus believes in the goodness of the world and will leave his door unlocked because he thinks that the world is good. And a person like, I'm not sure who. And a person like Malvo will always check and open the unlocked door and kill you in your sleep if you're there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Malvo is who you should lock your door against. There's, I think that you're, um, 
one of the main things about Northern Gothic, if we call Fargo the genre of Northern Gothic, mm-hmm. why is it set in Fargo? Yeah. Is exactly for that reason, because Fargo exists in American uh, imagination, the, the Midwest. Mm-hmm. It exists in American imagination as this quaint, innocent, wholesome place. And so setting extreme violence there is ironic, but it also is about, you know, the rest of America yearns for this better world. And where is that better world located? In the Midwest, maybe. Mm -hmm. Except no, it isn't. No, it isn't. That's, by the way, also, I'm veering away from Fargo a little bit to say... That's why Southern Gothic is a thing, too, because Southern Gothic is always about the South. The imagination of the South is always about uh, the past and politeness. And the South is where people tip their hats to you and then drag you out of your house and hang you. Yeah. And that's why the Midwest is exactly the same thing. Yeah. A different kind of politeness. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I'm not sure how much to... Uh, Maybe you'll have uh, smarter thoughts than I have, but the just visual motif throughout all three seasons of blood on snow, sometimes blood on milk that's being snow, mm-hmm. sometimes we talk about blood on snow, but we always have blood on snow, and frankly, like, not to be um, stupidly obvious about it, but this part of America isn't always winter and doesn't always have snow. And even in the show, it's not always winter. It's not always snowing. Mm -hmm. But we always get blood on snow. Why? I think it relates to exactly what you just said. It's this innocent Midwest. It's this uh, idea of a place that's clean and white being corrupted. Mm -hmm. Having actual corruption. And Yuri in the final season talks about the snow covering up the blood, but we never see that. We see... The blood covering the snow. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. Or covering a milkshake or milk or whatever. But it's always this red and white. Red on top of the white. Red and we could. White. You're very. That's that's a really good point. We could have filmed, you know, a, a blood patch and it snows on top of it and covers it all up. And that mm-hmm. would symbolically mean something very different. Because it would mean this, you know, everything gets hidden away again and it's still there under the surface. But that's not what Fargo's telling us. No, it's not. It's definitely, this whole season is not about covering anything up. It's about everything coming to light. Everything that is, everything that's evil is coming to light in this, in the whole arc of the three seasons. Hmm. Uh... Do you want to talk about duos? <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of pairs. Like juicy delicious pairs. Juicy no, delicious pairs. A lot of a lot of pairs of two people. And so I don't know what to say about them necessarily, but other than to like name them. But we have season one, we have Molly and Gus, we have Lester and Malvo, we have Wrench and Numbers, we have Budge and Pepper, we have Sam Hess's sons side mm-hmm. by side. And so we have a lot of like people playing off of each other. And influencing each other and coming together and coming apart. And when one of them dies, they often get replaced by a different duo. Yeah. Like, Wrench and Numbers get replaced by Budge and Pepper. Um, in season two, there's the Kitchen Brothers. There's Lou and Hank. There's Ed and Peggy. Bear and Dodd are kind of a pair. And Mike and Simone are a bit of a pair. Uh, Mm -hmm. season three has Mimo and Yuri as a pair of henchmen, Gloria and Winnie together, uh, Ray and Nikki, but also Ray and Emmett, but also Emmett and Cy, and also Nikki and Wrench. And so season three, you have the pairs, but they also, but they are changing a lot more and there's a lot more kind of different groupings. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I have a few immediate thoughts about that. One is... Just that you notice that the pairs of henchmen, always one of them dies. Yeah. Wrench and Numbers, and Numbers dies and Wrench survives. The Kitchen Brothers, and one of them dies and the other one survives. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mimo and Yuri, Mimo dies eventually, but Yuri... Well, they, but that's, all, that's the same. Wrench is the only one to solely survive out of all of those. Yeah, you're right. They, the second Kitchen Brother dies, dies eventually. Yeah. 
So that's interesting. And the Kitchen Brothers are the most, uh, I think, explicit case of this. But all of these are like, Mm -hmm. these are two halves and one half gets destroyed. And so they're incomplete. And in fact, I said the Kitchen Brothers the most obvious of that because they're twins and they Mm -hmm. appear as like really clearly the two of them and then one's gone. Yeah. But over the whole series, Wrench is the clearest example of that. Yeah. He's the survivor and he, he, Nikki is replacing Mr. Numbers and then Nikki's gone too and he's left alone. Yeah. And he's, that's really sad. And being a deaf care and being a deaf character is significant in that, in that he is alone in his uh, silent bubble in a way. And he keeps finding people who he can speak to, mm-hmm. who can interpret for him, uh, to people who don't understand him. And then that person, he loses that person again. Yeah, exactly. And he keeps, I mean, it only happens twice, but that's yeah. numbers. And then that's Nikki. And side note, I can't remember if we mentioned this in a previous, in the first time with Wrench, but he's actually played by a deaf actor. We did mention it, but it's so worth mentioning it's also again. It's worth mentioning that like... Good yes, job. good job, Fargo. Way to hire people who are with that with disabilities to play characters with disabilities. Good on yeah. you. I'm giving a thumbs up that you cannot see. <laughs> My other thought about the duos throughout is I really like what you pointed out that didn't really occur to me until you said it, that they get more complicated. Yes, absolutely. The duos in season one are really straightforward. Yeah. There's no confusion like... Uh, Molly and Gus. Molly is not paired with anyone but Gus. Gus mm-hmm. is not paired with anyone but Molly. Yeah. They interact with other characters, but that's the duo. Yeah. In season two, the Kitchen Brothers are really explicitly a pair. But they also have Mike Milligan but there. But they also have Mike Milligan there, and Lou and Hank are kind of a pair, but they go off in different directions. And, and, the, Lou and, they, have, and they have uh, Betsy. Betsy. And Ed and Peggy, a lot of the season of their arc is about whether they're going to be a pair or not. Yes, absolutely. And they end the season kind of coming back together as a pair, but they spend a lot of the middle... Well, like, except that Ed's dead. Except that Ed's dead. But I mean, yep. the last couple of episodes... And then Bear and Dodd, also a lot of the seasons about whether they're going to ever get on the same page. Yep. And then in season three, we have all those pairs swapping, switching, moving around. Mm, exactly. And even Mimo and Yuri, who are the most straightforward pair of henchmen, get a third henchman who joins their, yep. their duo. And then, you know, Yuri dies and Mimo continues without him yeah and that is like what happens with numbers and wrench but the duos keep shifting around and the clearest example of that is around ray and emmett who both mm-hmm. as you said like their pairs are paired with each other i mean obviously because they're played by the same actor but then yeah they also have their other people that they're paired with mm-hmm. so what does it mean then that uh these duos are used to be, back in season one, they used to be reliable, and in season three, they're not anymore. Mm -hmm. You can't depend on them anymore. You can't expect your partner to to be be your partner. partner. And I mean, it does show a way in which Fargo, as a whole, goes from more simple to more complicated. Mm -hmm. And more uh, straightforward and and like even the evil Lorne is Lorne Malvo is a very straightforward evil. To at the end you have Varga who's evil but like in a very different way and like he might get away with it at the end and like yeah <laughs> who kills Varga who kills Prince Humperdinck at the end somebody's got to do it is it Inigo who yeah it really is highlighting how much the three seasons get more and more complex. So anything else you want to talk about? I want to move maybe from uh, motifs to some of the deeper themes that Mm -hmm. persist throughout the three seasons. Yeah. So every single episode of the show starts with, this is a true story. So should we talk about some truths? 
Yeah. This as a series, this is a series about stories and truth. Mm-hmm. That's part of why, I mean, we said at the top of our epi- of our show today that we both kind of think that season three is the last season. I think, not to speak for you, but I think <laughs> that the reason why I really think that this show is over with season three is because the ending is the right ending. Mm-hmm. Because this ambiguous ending, I don't... Maybe I, if Noah Hawley thinks of something, I will be in. And I'll yep, watch it. Absolutely. But uh, this is an ending that take that thematically really is about what is truth and what is a story and how do you know what's true. And that's what the whole show has been about. And ending it in that way uh, creates an interpretive context even for the first season. So you go back to the first season and you think of it now in the light of you can't trust what you see. Yeah. You can't trust what we tell you. Stories are stories. I like that as the theme that the show, it makes truth and story more plainly the overarching theme of all three seasons. Yes. This ending. Yeah. If you had a fourth season and it was, uh, about another predator and there weren't weren't stories told and it ended with them clearly being caught, then the overarching theme might be predators. Yeah. But as it is, the overarching theme is stories and truth. And you can, and you, I mean, you just know that from that title card that happens in every single episode, you know that this is a story about truth and it messes with your brain that they tell you at the beginning, this is a true story when like, you know that it's not true, true. You know that it's not factually happened in the real world but there's a truth to it and it's saying this is a true story in i mean is it (laughs) is it that is is it it, like it is the question for me to be me because it feels like what it's saying is okay it's not a true story in the sense of like it actually happened but it's a true story in the sense of it tells truths about the world and when i watch it i go I don't want that to be true about the world. <laughs> I don't know if I want to live in a world where that kind of thing can happen. <laughs> well, and I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I would say that the f- meaning of this is a true story when you've seen season three is different from the meaning of this is a true story when you've seen season one. Yes. In season one, this is a true story is essentially functioning as a hook to get you emotionally invested in the season and to yeah. spend your disbelief. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like winking at you. Yeah. But by the end of season three, that this is a true story is encouraging you to be like, what is true? How do you decide whether something's true? Mm -hmm. Have you ever in your life been told a true story? If the is a police report, a true story in what sense is this fiction less true than a police report? Because just because the state tells you something is true doesn't mean it is. And just because something didn't happen factually in the real world doesn't mean it's not true. And just because something happened factually in the world doesn't mean it is true is what we're told again and again in season three. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean when I say season three recontextualizes the meaning of truth and story. Yeah. Is I think that for the movie Fargo, it's a Coen Brothers ironic wink to like... Mm-hmm. True crime, true crime genre. genre. And season one is closer to that. But by season three, that's not what we're doing with that. This is a true story anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk about toxic masculinity? I definitely want to talk about toxic masculinity in Fargo. So what do we mean exactly by toxic masculinity? We mean that the way that um, men are told to be tough and strong and that they they can't display anything stereotypically feminine or any kind of weakness because anything stereotypically feminine is weakness and this pervasive need in society for men to be manly men and to yeah so that can be toxic to the entire world yeah and I want to just be clear because for some of you listening these are terms you're really familiar with but yeah. this may be new terms to you or even terms that you've heard but not really understood so yeah toxic masculinity who is it toxic to everyone 
everyone. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's not only talk. It's toxic to women. It's toxic, it's toxic, to, toxic men. to men. It's toxic to the people being told this. It's toxic to the people telling this. Yeah. And when we say toxic masculinity, when we talk about toxic masculinity, does that mean all men are bad? No. No. Right? Yeah. Uh, I know you know this and most of our listeners do, but let's just be clear let's about be clear what, what we mean, we yes. mean yeah. is it's a kind of story of what it is to be a man that's harmful for everyone. Yeah. Okay. It means that men cannot uh, experience the full range of human emotion. And that's bad, and for, that's women, bad for women and, and men. it's bad for men. Yep. So getting back to Fargo, in season one, uh, Lester murders his wife while she is berating him, mm-hmm. while she is... emasculating him specifically emasculating him sexually exactly and so his uh, need to kill her comes from this comes out of this uh, feeling that he's not a real man but um, by the end of the season Gus is killing Malvo but he's also killing Malvo because Malvo made him feel not like a real man Mm -hmm. season two is uh, like all of the Gerharts are just toxic and, and like and all, all the male Gerharts are incredibly toxic and especially can't ex- especially Dodd, especially, especially Dodd. Dodd is, a, but not only, yeah, incredible misogynist and they can't accept Floyd as their leader at all because she's a woman. And Simone mm-hmm. uh, is greatly affected by the toxicity of her father. And if she, he had been, if he had been allowed to expl- have the full range of human emotion, he may have shown love to her and not, and she may have not made the bad choices that she did and end up being killed. Yep. Season three, we have Varga, who's just a raging misogynist. Yeah. His witness, most especially his speech about uh, size fat wife. Yeah, exactly. And just like so many of the murders, it feels like come from a place of you are unable to be your full self, therefore, I don't know. What do you mean by that? There's, I'm just trying to think of like when Emmett and Ray are fighting over the stamp Mm -hmm. and Emmett ends up killing Ray, Ray has always felt emasculated by by Emmett. Emmett has made him feel less of a man his entire life. And this kind of fighting over this stamp has come to a head through this. And if they had been allowed to express their emotions properly, they may not have Mm -hmm. had this fight, which resulted in Ray's death. And think about how Emmett's house is full of antlers and dead animals, the big bear. And think about how Ray is balding Mm -hmm. because paradoxically, even though male pattern baldness is very male, it's also a signifier of lack of virility. Yeah. Like a really manly man has hair and a weak, unmanly man is balding. Yeah. So take that, father-in-law. Um, <laughs> not really. Except the skinheads. Anyway, that's a whole different That's a whole different thing. kettle of fish. Yep. Can that's, we're not talking about talk that. Talk that off, Mike, if we want to. <laughs> yep. Are you done for the moment? Because I want to back up and talk about each of those seasons. You went yes. by them. Yeah, I flew by them, but I want to get back and talk about each of them, too. Yeah. So what do you want to say about... Well, I want to talk about season one first and yeah. how how much of Lester's behavior throughout is mediated by his desire to prove to himself and to Malvo that he's a real man. Mm-hmm. And that very first moment when he kills his wife with a hammer, um, which is a phallic mm. symbol, yep. uh, while she's telling him that he's not good at sex, so he hits her really hard with a big dick. <laughs> yep. And that is... A, so that is Making a connection that is inherent in toxic masculinity between sex and violence. Mm -hmm. So he proves that he is sexually virile by by killing killing someone. Because death, sex, and violence can't, are all intertwined in the, in toxic masculinity. That's part of what makes it so toxic. Yeah. And then he, when he sleeps with... There's no sleeping involved. When he has sex with uh, Sam Hess's widow, that is also not at all about her. No. Right? 
And this is, again, about him proving to Sam that he is a real man. Yeah. Because toxic masculinity doesn't care about women at all. Yep. Right? Uh, Not only barely even as sexual objects. Because Mm -hmm. he's not satisfying lust. He's not actually thinking of her as a sexual object. He's thinking of her as a means by which he negotiates his power in relation to other men. Yep, absolutely. And then his second wife, Linda, is again about him demonstrating to himself and to her that he's a real man. Mm-hmm. So he exhibits, especially in what we see of his interactions with her, are possessive and dismissive and callous. So he doesn't care about her well-being. She is a status symbol within his own mind that he has uh, collected a new wife, a new hotter wife, so that he can be more of a manly man. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We also have toxic masculinity in his brother, whose Ooh, name I yeah, also forget, Chaz. Chaz, and his associate. I mean, his gun fetish. Mm-hmm. Another phallic symbol. It's uh, what, like all the hunting. There's all the hunting in this season, and that's very, like, phallic and, yeah. Yeah. Sex and death. And then Malvo also connects sex and death, and we see that especially in his in his story about the uh, woman getting humped by a d- dog. Yeah, yeah. That he thinks of, uh, I mean, it, there's a, it's... Freudian, he thinks of the sex drive and the death drive as the drives that are not that are not negotiable mm. and that are connected yeah. to each other. Yeah, inevitable. Inevitable. So the way that toxic masculinity affects all these men in the series also is a major theme for all the women in this series. Mm-hmm. And we have this constant theme throughout all three seasons of smart, capable, competent women who are not believed, who mm-hmm. are constantly pushed down by men, pushed down by men. Mm-hmm. We have Molly, who just is the smartest person in her, just in her... World. <laughs> world, but I was more thinking in her police station. And Bill just, like, doesn't believe her. And we have uh, Betsy, who is smart, but she doesn't have a role in... She's just, like, she's just stuck at home. With cancer. <laughs> and even Hank and Lou, who respect her intelligence, don't give her any institutional respect. She yeah, exactly. And uh, and Peggy as well, who is, who is deeply affected by Ed's need for the status quo. And then we have Gloria. And Gloria, I feel like, is the biggest example because she has... Everyone telling her she's wrong. She has she has all of her power stripped, slowly stripped away from her and stripped away from her, and that's just and beaten down. And she has uh, this boss, who is new chief, who is just like grinding her into the ground, constantly telling her she's wrong and constantly coming up with like there's a better solution. There's a solution that solves everything. Mm-hmm. And by the end, we have this ambiguous ending. We have this ending where Varga says a man is going to come in and going to tell you that you are wrong, a man that you can't, that you don't have power over, or that has power over you, or whatever he says. A man you can't argue with. A man you can't argue with, that's what it is. A man you can't argue with is going to come in here and set me free. And we don't get to know whether that's true or not. And so we have to decide whether we believe in a world where women get listened to in the end, where a woman can, can, can win, (laughs) Or a world where a man is going to come in who she can't argue with mm-hmm. again. And it's really very important for Fargo that it's a man who is going to come yeah, in. Absolutely. It's not just a superior officer. Yeah. A man you can't argue with. And her new chief is, let's be again clear about it, that he is as much of a misogynist as Dodd is. Yeah, absolutely. Um that it's not just him uh, exerting institutional power. Mm-hmm. It's important for the meaning of the show that he's exerting institutional power over a woman who he he doesn't respect and doesn't listen to because she's a woman. Yeah, like, exactly. 
and likewise Bill doesn't respect and doesn't listen to Molly, even though he knows she's smarter than he is. Yeah. Because she's a woman and he's a man and he, and that's connected to institutional support. And that's is because it is emphasizing institutional sexism Mm -hmm. because men are given institutional roles and institutional power. And that connects back to season two where Betsy is as good a detective as Lou and Hank, but doesn't have an institutional role. She can, she can and does actually help. And she even says lines of like, you know, I'm just doing daddy's job for him. Yeah. But because she doesn't have an institutional role, uh, she isn't given credit and she isn't given the uh, fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And we see in Molly and Gloria that they still don't have, that these women in 2008 and 2010 still don't have the institutional support that they need and deserve. Yeah. And if we're going to talk about toxic masculinity and women in Fargo, we can't not talk about Peggy. Yes, exactly. Because the, the Peggy's whole deal, like her last speech with Lou, makes her thematic meaning in this context really clear when she says, you know, you wouldn't understand you're a man. Mm-hmm. I can't, you can't do everything that they want you to do. She's lost throughout the season. She, The reason that she is uh, mentally unsound is because there isn't a... There isn't room for her to to exist in the society she finds herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where even a character who we are, a character whose side we are on, who we like, like Lou, is also a part of this uh, narrative of toxic masculinity who can't listen to, can't respect, can't support, can't make room for women. And yeah. that's both Betsy and Peggy. Yeah. Absolutely. I think Bear is a really interesting uh, figure if we're talking about toxic masculinity in season two, because mm-hmm. he does support Floyd as the leader. Yep. But he also shoots Simone. But he also shoots Simone. And he's the one, I mean, there's an interesting, if we look at Bear and Dodd as the representations of toxic masculinity, Bear fits more closely to a, a hyper-masculine ideal. Like he's big, mm-hmm. he's hairy. He's yeah. strong. His name is Bear. His name is Bear. He's physically strong. He And that's symbolized in his broken uh, hand that he just bangs off because yeah. he's... And he's uh, even more emotionally closed off than Dodd is. Yes. He never reveals any emotions. That is, you know, the strong silent type is a toxic... Uh, archetype of men except when his son is in danger that's when he gets angry and that's just like my son and heir kind of idea which is just more of the same and again like you said with ray and emmett if bear and dodd were capable of you know expressing their emotions directly Mm -hmm. if bear was capable of saying I love my son, am worried about him, am scared and hurt and sad that you yep. <laughs> put him mm-hmm. in danger, uh, the whole world would be a different world. Yep, it would be. Um, Bear's really interesting because, yeah, he's, in, a, in some ways, he is less of a, he, he subverts toxic masculinity more than Dodd does. But in the other ways, he's the one who kills Simone. Unless he doesn't. Unless he doesn't! Except he does. We see her dead, Jan. So? We see all <laughs> sorts of things that didn't happen. Okay, Noah Holly, if you are listening, <laughs> season four is about Simone. <laughs> and her new life. Simone, it's set in, ni- in the 90s. About <laughs> Simone and her new life. She's now a uh, P.I. yes exactly (laughs) anyway i just think that bear's interesting i don't i guess have more to say than just he's weird because he's subverting and reinforcing these stereotypes at the same time yeah and then simone if if thaddeus mobley mobley whatever becomes anastasi 
that's like a hint that Simone could have left her life and become someone completely different. And Pansy left his life and became someone different. Maybe Simone left her life and became, what's her name, who scams Thaddeus Mobley. Played by a different actress, but we've seen the same characters. That's the seven. It's the same time. She'd be the right age. She'd be about the right age. It's, we've seen we've seen different uh, Vivian, characters. Vivian Lord. Vivian Lord. Maybe Simone is Vivian Lord. We've yes. seen different characters played by different actors on the show. In Hansi, who becomes Moses Tripoli, who's played by a the totally ta- different The timeline actor. doesn't work out because season two is like... 1980. Oh, yeah, 79. And the Vivian Lord is pre, is earlier than that. Dang it. Shoot. So close. And yet, it could work because this show doesn't like, doesn't care about continuity, things like that. Can we talk about Thaddeus (laughs) Mobley and uh, what's his name, the producer, and Toxic Masculinity while we're talking about that? That in season three, uh, Zimmerman, is it Zimmerman? Yeah, Howard Zimmerman. Howard Zimmerman. He strokes uh, his ego. He strokes Thaddeus's ego and plays on that, like, you'll be a real man if you, like, sleep with this girl, if you write me a script, do all these things, and it'll be, you'll get all you ever wanted, and you'll be so much like a real man. And he's secretly thinking of him as super weak. He can just take advantage of him. Yeah. But then, once he once that all comes to a head, Thaddeus does become become a real man in that quote-unquote hits, hits him with another hits him... Hits him with another phallic symbol and beats while him. he is uh, sexually emasculating him by saying that the uh, hot, desirable woman that you thought you owned, I actually own. Yeah, ooh, that's interesting. Yep, and Vivian Lord throughout is very, very explicitly like his prize for is part of his payment. Yeah, for absolutely, writing, absolutely for writing, and so again. Part of what makes Howard Zimmerman toxic, uh, an example of toxic masculinity is that he treats Vivian Lord as if she is a object to be rented out. Mm-hmm. And part of what makes Thaddeus Mobley toxic masculinity and makes him victimizable is that he also accepts that premise. Yeah. Right? If he wasn't uh, himself subject to toxic, toxic masculinity, he wouldn't be so easy to con. Yep. Precisely. It hurts everyone. It hurts everyone. Prey, predator, and in between are all harmed. Yeah. We could go on and on. We've gone on and on. Um, So what other uh, themes did you want to touch on? I want to touch on uh, good and evil. Mm, Right. And specifically, we mentioned this way back when we did a current obsessions about Fargo. We talked about which is a Patreon exclusive. Which is a Patreon exclusive that you too can listen to for uh, only one dollar a month support on <laughs> patreon.com slash clockworkscast. We talked about Fargo and I said that one of the things I really liked, I'd only seen season one at that point, mm-hmm. was that this is a show about ordinary good and extraordinary evil. Mm-hmm. I think that still holds. Yeah, absolutely. All through three absolutely. seasons in. The good characters, like Molly mm-hmm. and Gloria and Lou and Hank, mm-hmm. especially I'm interested in Molly and Gloria, mm-hmm. they are not super cops. Yep. They are not amazing, outstanding, and, he, and Lou also, like, not super detectives who are making enormous intuitive leaps that no one could see coming, and they're yep. regular, ordinary detectives and cops, and especially... Like, we think back to season one, and Gus is not a particularly good cop. Yeah. But he's just an ordinary good. Yeah. And Molly sees these connections. She's confident. uh, But they're seeable connections. The most supernaturally uh, talented detective in the whole series is Hansi. Mm-hmm. Lou doesn't see things that Hansi sees. Yeah. And it's important, I think, for the show. But, okay, so these good characters are just ordinary good people doing what they should be doing uh, in the ordinary way. Yep. Malvo is supernaturally evil. And supernaturally evil both as a, like, psychopath who kills without remorse, as witnessed most obviously in the elevator when he kills the three people 
that he against his own self-interest on a whim for no yeah for reason. Real reason um he's also supernaturally powerful he is able to uh enter into uh stavros's house and move around without stavros seeing him he's able to he's able to drag that guy off with no one stopping him Drag that guy off with no one it's seeing like him, identifying of, uh, like, and stalking. There's he's able to walk into the uh, mafia building with the two FBI agents outside who yeah. don't see him. He's able to survive being shot by Gus uh, for a little while. Yeah, absolutely. He's able to survive getting a bear trap stuck on his foot. Like he's supernaturally evil. Yeah, absolutely. And look at in season two, uh, many of the I think of. You know, bear who can just pull a cast off of himself and is fine. Mm-hmm. Think of Hansi, who is supernatural detective. Yeah. Think of, uh, and can, as a sharpshooter, just like shoot and kill as many people as he feels like. Pew, 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 pew. Mm-hmm. Um, even think of... The Kitchen Brothers are like, just bizarre, like, they're a set of twins who just kill people for fun. Like, they just, like, they enjoy it for some reason and are silent. The whole shootout in the woods is very... Like, over-the-top Yeah. And then in season three, Varga is supernaturally evil. He has infinite resources, Mm -hmm. apparently. Witness when he's talking, when he's negotiating with Nikki, and he's like, you just added another zero. You added two more zeros. You added another zero. Well, unless he was originally planning on paying her $100, his resources, his financial resources are infinite. Yeah. He's, uh... In a, in a very different way than the other ones have been, he's less with the indiscriminate killing and more with the torture of people around him. Like, he's supernaturally, like, making him drink the cup that his balls have been in, making, like, just doing extra and just, like, knowing all these things. He's just a different kind of evil, but he is, like... And he supernaturally knows, like, everything about Emmett and Ray. Though there's an interesting... I was going to say that there's an interesting, I think, thing that they do with that, that he, on one hand, supernaturally knows all this stuff, and then on the other hand, they undercut that by... How does he know it? Just by Googling. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why he doesn't know anything about Gloria. Yeah. That it's a very, in fact, mundane way that he connect, collects that information. That's true. But... He still has it. Yeah. Right? And he is extraordinary, supernatural, all the way through. I've said supernatural, and by which I mean uh, unusual or extraordinary, not necessarily magical or mystical. Yeah. But his uh, supernatural cruelty, as you say, and his is extraordinary. And one of the things about him is his... One of the reasons that Emmett and Sai are unable to cope with him is that he flouts conventional norms. Mm-hmm. He just steps in and is like, I'm in charge of your company now. And they have no idea how to react to that because yeah. it is not within the normal bounds of civilized interaction. Yeah. So all of the evil throughout the whole series is completely outside the bounds of normal evil, mm-hmm. completely outside the bounds of normal behavior. It's extraordinary evil. And all the good is ordinary people doing or their ordinary job in the mm-hmm. way that they are meant to be doing it. Yep. And the show tells us that ordinary good can and does defeat extraordinary evil. Mm-hmm. Sure does. There is not a reason that uh, Molly, despite being intelligent, competent, should be able to defeat... Lauren Malvo, who is supernatural. Yeah. Except that this is a show where good triumphs. where And that thematically, it's telling us that you don't have to be even Molly to defeat a Lauren Malvo. You just have to be a Gus. You just have to be, yeah, yeah, exactly. You just have to be good. And that's why, although from a character perspective, it, I think it would have been better if Molly had been the one to ultimately deal with Malvo. From a theme perspective, it's important that it's not the most competent police officer who mm-hmm. d- dispatches Malvo, because you don't have to be the most competent police officer. You don't have to be the greatest detective in the world. He's not even a police officer at He's that point. He's just a mailman. He's just a mailman. He's just a mailman who is trying to do what's right, yep. because you have to try. 
I like that. Mm-hmm. It is why, despite the darkness and grimness and violence of Fargo, I think that there is, at its core, an optimism that I find personally very appealing. Mm-hmm. Not as an, like, on an emotional and personal level. I like to see good people doing good. So then, but if we, if the ending is the ultimate ending, then it doesn't end with that. Well, it ends with coming, making the theme be about stories. And we've shown you that ordinary good defeats extraordinary evil. We've shown you that again Mm -hmm. and again, and you have to come to the end of the series and decide, was that just a story? Or is that what happens? Or is that what happens? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happens. And I think that's both what happens because that's what Fargo is, and also because I think that's what happens. Mm -hmm. But I like that the show gives you room to say, no, that was a story. Yeah. What really happens is extraordinary. Evil is extraordinary Mm -hmm. and overwhelming. I think it puts some of that emotional work on the audience. I'm willing to do it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well then. So, do you want to delve into anything else or listener feedback? Let's talk a bit about what our listeners have said about the show and about us. All right. So, we got a question from at Gypsy Book Nerd on Twitter. It's Rachel. She asked, can the three seasons be seen as parts of a whole? Is there any evidence that these are all one story? I think everything we just said is I think it's a whole story. That thematically, you can connect all three. Uh, it could also be defined as Mr. Wrench's story. Mm-hmm. He is in all three seasons. We see how, as a child, he was somehow became in, employed by Hansi who became Moses Tripoli in season two. We see his life as a henchman. And in season three, we see his life after Mr. Numbers and him as an angel of vengeance against Emmett. Mm-hmm. I think it really depends on what you mean by a story. Mm-hmm. And I think the show is all about what you mean by a story. And I happen to know uh, that uh, Rachel listens to a podcast about how story works. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Lonnie Diane Rich, who from Chipperish, from Chipperish story expert Lonnie Di- Diane Rich, I recommend it and her strongly. But Lonnie's perspective is fairly um, prescriptive about what counts as a story and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. That she has a, a narratology perspective. Mm-hmm. From a narratology perspective, where there's an inciting incident and a, the conflict and. Conflict continues throughout the entire story, and there are the seven anchor scenes. Um, I don't think that this no. is one story this from, one that story from that picture. definition of a story. Yeah. But in terms of theme, it certainly happens all in the same world. Mm-hmm. There certainly are characters in common between yeah. all of them. That's indisputable. And in terms of theme, is it telling one big story thematically? I think absolutely yes. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, as you said... Uh, maybe the protagonist of this whole show is Mr. Wrench. And if you write me a fourth season, you can change what the whole story means, and you can change what the first season meant in the fourth season. Yep. And you even, if you were nimble enough, uh, turn it into a a narratologically uh, coherent single story. I think that is doable. Absolutely. In a fourth season, but it hasn't happened yet. So it depends on what you mean by a story. Yeah. (laughs) We asked about season two on Twitter. We asked, Mike Milligan tells Simone that the 70s are a hangover of the 60s. So what does that make the 80s? And we had back and forth the conversation with at Gypsy Book Nerd about that also. Where she said that the 80s are presented as the end of everything good and free. Stifling, if you will. The 80s is growing up. We thought it was going to be the after party but it's not what we expected when we got there. The 80s is reality. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely true. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. One more thing from at Gypsy Book Nerd about Peggy and Betsy's pills in season two. Um, she says, 
Peggy takes pills because she doesn't want the life Betsy had. Betsy takes pills to try to get that life back. Yes, yeah. And I tried, that was good because I was having trouble. I felt like those pills were connected, but I was having struggle, struggling to put them together. But that nails it right on the head. Also on Twitter, we had a conversation about Peggy and patriarchy in season two. Mm -hmm. At Lini RC talked to us quite a bit back and forth. I'm Mm going to pull out some particular quotes that show her insights. She says, first of all, she says, Peggy is the best. I love her. I had her sweaters when I was in high school, and I don't care if she's crazy. I adore her. I'm truly irritated by the people are dead, Peggy, by Lou, laying it all at her feet. 1979 patriarchy blaming the victim. She says, although Peggy is culpable for deaths, that's entirely different from being actually guilty and going to jail or death. Although her legal actions set off a series of unfortunate events and deaths, it's a pretty grim choice for a woman in this story. You're screwed either way. You fight it or you accept it. Yep. I think that's all absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I agree. This is season two, uh, especially, is a pretty grim view on the role and place and opportunities for Mm -hmm. women. Yep. We also got yeah. We also got a bit of feedback, just saying that people like us. So thank you to uh, to Nancy on Patreon. Thank you to Rachel on Patreon for uh, giving us a little bit of praise and giving us some motivation, saying that they liked they liked it, even though it was super long. Actually, they said that they wanted it to be longer. So yeah, I I, we appreciate that because we can talk and talk and talk forever. What Rachel mm. actually said was, "The longer the better." The longer which the better. I take as a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Five hours. <laughs> So thanks to to Lini, Rachel, and and Nancy for uh, contributing to our conversation and chatting with us. We'd love to hear more of what people have to say. If you want to add us on Twitter, we're at ClockworksCast. You can talk to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash ClockworksCast. You can send us an email, ClockworksCast at gmail.com. If you like what we do here, you can support us on Patreon. These Fargo episodes were made possible by our generous Patreon supporters. And if you want to be one of them, uh, you can kick us a dollar a month or whatever you want. Patreon.com slash ClockworksCast. We already mentioned that even earlier in the episode. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for this fun time delving into Fargo. I feel like we could say a thousand more things about the show. I think we could. But... What are we planning for next on Clockworks? We're planning on... We're going to talk about Pushing Daisies for an episode, not nearly as in-depth as we did with Fargo. We'll talk about... And we're going to talk about some Legion comics. We'll post on our... In the show notes for this episode and in future uh, on Patreon and on Twitter exactly what those comics will be. Yeah, so if you want to read those comics, we'll show you where you can find them digitally. You can read them and keep up with us. Yeah. So I don't know whether Pushing Daisies or the comics will come next, but one of those will come up soon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.